Hi, everyone. My name is Amor Yates. I am the writer and producer of Design Is Everywhere. Design Is Everywhere is generously supported by MadPow, which is hosting its 13th annual Health Experience Design Conference, HXD, on April 11th and April 12th in Boston, Massachusetts. HXD provides a unique crossroads for a diverse community of executives and practitioners in design, innovation, research, strategy, and technology to help transform the American health system. Interested in attending? Visit hxdconf.com. That's hxdconf.com. And use code DMEPODCAST for $100 off. Thanks, and back to the show. Welcome to Design Is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our world. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and then together we interview a guest about their work in design. Because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're learning about an organization that is designing a new marketplace for artists. I will be joined by Liz Powers, co-founder and chief executive officer at Artlifting, where artists impacted by homelessness and disabilities are given a platform to share their artistic talents. And later on, we'll chat with Brian Parker, Director of National Real Estate Workplace Strategy, Performance and Optimization at PwC, who's a corporate client of Artlifting and has their work around their offices. Together, we'll talk about how corporations can be involved in this important work. But first, I wanna give a shout out to the amazing Design Museum Magazine, If you like this podcast, I know you'll love our quarterly publication. The most recent issue is really cool. It's all about the business of design. So there's different articles about design education and business education and different business models for design firms. The one before that was on climate change. There's always new topics. We have issues coming up about footwear design, design and government, and more. Subscribing is only $3 per month, and you get the world of design delivered right to your mailbox. Check out Design Museum Magazine by visiting our website, designmuseumeverywhere.org, and click on Magazine in the menu. You'll see some recent articles and a link to subscribe. And with that, on to this week's topic. When Liz Powers was working as a caseworker, she heard, I don't want a handout, I want an opportunity, consistently from her clients who were impacted by homelessness and disabilities. So in November of 2013, Liz co-founded Artlifting with her brother, Spencer Powers, to connect artists who are homeless or disabled with corporate buyers. I'm joined by our guest co-host this week, Liz Powers, to learn more about designing a new marketplace for original paintings, prints, and products to empower homeless and disabled artists. Liz is the co-founder and chief happiness spreader at Artlifting. At Artlifting, artists have earned millions through the support of 350 corporate customers and individual supporters spread across five continents. Liz was selected for the Forbes 30 Under 30 and Boston Globe's Game Changers. Her innovative thinking gives a space for the talents of amazing artists who are homeless or have disabilities and provides them with the opportunity to showcase their work. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, it's lovely to see you. I know a bit of your sort of origin story of Artlifting, but I would love to have you share it with our listeners, sort of your journey to founding Artlifting and when you discovered that like this was the type of work that you wanted to do. Certainly. So it has been a a winding road over the last uh, 15 years. 
Um, art lifting is eight years old, but the seven years leading up to it weren't a direct path. So to start, I was a freshman at Harvard studying sociology. I had grew up, grown up in a town in Massachusetts where there wasn't any homelessness. Um, so being in Harvard Square, which is a real center for homelessness, um, I just wanted to do something uh, to contribute to the community. Started really simple, uh, flipping pancakes um, at the local shelter, and then realized that that wasn't a great personality fit for me because uh, I didn't get to interact with the guests. I was just in the kitchen the whole time. And I switched to do volunteer social work for most of college. Um, so what I was doing was meeting with individuals one-on-one, -on -one, helping get housing, jobs, uh, access to food resources, and learned so much during those four years, even more than I learned in the classroom, sure. to be honest. <laughs> yes. Um, one of the things that I heard repeatedly um, that you were sharing in my intro was from clients who desperately wanted to work, saying, Liz, I want an opportunity, not a handout. And this was also, I was in college um, during the recession, the last recession, so 2008, 2009, 2010. And a lot of times I just felt like banging my head against the wall. I'd meet with you know the same client for an hour each week, You know, have a, a whole group of clients each week, but to see kind of the same person literally apply to hundreds of jobs and be quote unquote lucky when they got a rejection, because at least that was a response. It really broke my heart. And I thought, I really need to redefine what a quote unquote job can be in order to include more people in the economy. But just had that question in the back of my mind for years. Everything clicked a few years later. When I graduated, I had a grant from Harvard uh, for a year that paid my salary. It was for a self-designed public service project. So that project was to build art groups in local shelters in Cambridge, Massachusetts, because I had also seen this repeated problem uh, during my four years of volunteer social work of individuals telling me, Liz, I'm really lonely. And I'd hear that in back-to-back one-on-ones, you know, four hours in a row with a different person and thought, this isn't rocket science. Why don't I figure out a way to bring people together to support one another? And I'm an artist, so I thought, art, you know, that, that's kind of the least awkward way to do it versus a, a listening and support group with fluorescent lights and no one wanting to talk. And when I was in those art groups, realized, oh my gosh, this artwork is saleable. And surprisingly, my job wasn't unique at all. Um, I learned that there are about a thousand existing art therapy groups and shelters and social service agencies in the U.S. alone, which meant that there were a thousand closets stuffed with saleable art. And this could be my way to help redefine what a job is. Yeah, that's great. Was there a, a moment or someone's particular artwork when you like it clicked for you that there could be like a real commercial market for this work? Yeah, the so that art show was called City Heart. And the first couple years, we got churches to donate space. 
So we purposely had churches that were at like really central spots in the city, but it was a church basement and like it wasn't a place where people were naturally walking through. They had to see our signs outside. But once we got into the Prudential Center Mall, where it was a place where someone was already walking through because they were getting their book at Barnes and Noble, that was a big turning point because we had random strangers there. And someone said to me, when's the next show? Uh. <laughs> and I said, oh, it's in a year. And they were so disappointed. You know, this was just like a stranger walking by. So realized, okay, there's a market, not just here, but also what about the artists across the country? Um, let's expand to not just be one day a year, but every day to not just support artists in Boston, but nationwide. But also we were just selling original artwork. And that meant, you know, artists could only make money once from each piece. So why don't we sell prints and license the work so artists can make unending money from each piece? So break it down for us. How does it work now? Like, how do you work with the artists on one side of the marketplace? And then how do you market their work and where does it go? Yeah. So um, our business model has stayed the same from day one, which we're really proud of. So we work very similarly to a quote unquote normal gallery. Um, the typical split is 50-50. Uh, we're nearly identical. Uh, we have 55% of the profit go to the artists, 1% to our art supply fund for our artists, and then 44% uh, to cover costs and grow our impact. In terms of like how it works, like how do we find artists or how they find us? Um, in the early days, it was very grassroots of, we started with four artists who I knew through the, um, homeless shelter community in Boston. And then very early days were really just contacting art therapists. Uh, so my former job to say, this is our mission. Um, we're trying to curate the top work from your groups. So rather than announce it to all 30 people in your group, can you let us know if you think three or five people would be a good fit? And then as the years progressed, we ended up getting a bunch of press, um, like the Today Show and the cover of the New York Times business section. So then once we had that visibility, all of a sudden we had a lot of artists coming inbound from the, across the U.S. So it's been kind of a, a combination of recruiting artists, but and them coming to us. Yeah. And then, so that's one side of the sort of the marketplace. How are you marketing their work and sort of who a typical customer? And I know we're going to talk to one of your big customers. I know there's a whole sort of like commercial art aspect to this. So that has been a winding road <laughs> as well. Um, in the very early days, um, my brother and I just started with 4,000 of our savings. And that was essentially for the lawyers to help us like legally file as a business. Um, so basically started with nothing. And that meant we didn't have a marketing budget. So we just wrote simple emails to reporters um, sharing our artist stories. And uh, we're really blessed to get a lot of articles. And that was our kind of lead generation, our one tool. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we were, we just also, you know, since we didn't have money, we couldn't pay a web developer. So we just created a super simple website on Shopify 
my friends created our logo and we just hit the ground running and turned out that a lot of uh, individuals were buying for their homes. Um, so we were able to take that 4,000 of savings as the investment in the company and grow that organically to six figures in revenue. But then <laughs> we realized like, wait, to really scale in consumer company, you need a lot of marketing dollars for Facebook ads and Instagram ads. And that was just not a, a resource we had. But also our mom always says, you should work smarter, not harder. And we realized like, wait, we could sell you know, one piece to hang in someone's living room, or we could see, you know, a Google skyscraper that has needs 500 pieces of artwork. Um, so about six years ago, we pivoted um, from selling to con individual consumers to primarily corporations. And that has been huge in terms of growing our impacts and leading to the, the millions of dollars our artists have earned. That's amazing. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about some of the artists and what the impact has been for them, right? Because at the end of the day, it's about kind of lifting them with this amazing opportunity. Oh my gosh. So our artists, um, they're in 26 states now. So one is Mia Brown. Um, she has a cerebral palsy and is in a wheelchair um, and doesn't have enough strength to paint with her hand. So she actually has a paintbrush attached to her helmet and calls it her magic wand. And um, I wish you all could see visuals of what she creates. Uh, maybe we can do it on some social media posts because she just creates stunning images. Um, so stunning that the CEO of LinkedIn even bought her work. Another artist, Eric Santa Maria, also is in a wheelchair. Uh, but he doesn't have enough neck strength to paint with his head like Mia. So he actually paints with his wheelchair, with the canvas on the ground. And another artist, Michael's Lyric, is quadriplegic. Um, so he doesn't have the same opportunity as Mia or Eric to either paint with her head or his wheelchair. So he actually uses voice recognition software. And he says that he takes, quote unquote, unwanted images, um, so different photos, and uses the voice recognition software to you know, transform them into something beautiful. And kind of that process is a form of art therapy for him as well. I, I just feel like so inspired when I wake up every morning to get to represent these artists. Oh, I bet. Yeah. What do you hear from them as they're you know, getting a chance to create their work and have it, like you said, in the Googleplex and, and make a living. What do they say about this opportunity? We had a really funny artist quote yesterday, actually. Uh, he said, I want to know what Harry Potter dorm you all live in because you just make magic happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, but That's I, a good, nice little compliment. There. Yeah. That was kind of a particularly funny thank you. But in general, uh, a common word that we use from our artists is that they feel validated. We're trying really hard to, you know, and part of this is kind of in the bones of the company of being a for-profit company, of making sure that our artists are treated with dignity and not um, kind of 
marketed as a quote unquote charity case. Um, so that's been you know, really important to our artists. Um, a quote that Mia says is, I'm an artist who happens to have a disability. So they, they're psyched to, you know, finally have a stage for people to see their work and a platform to inspire other people as well. Liz, I love what you're doing. Thank you for sharing with us. Uh, it's just amazing. Listeners, to see more of Liz's work and this amazing artwork, visit artlifting.com. And Liz, stick around. We're going to bring one of your customers into this conversation, Brian Parker, after a quick break. Design Museum Everywhere's week-long event, Design Museum Week, is coming soon. Join us April 25th to 29th to celebrate accomplishments, share new ideas, and inspire through design. The week will reconceptualize design's role in 21st century systems and issues through dozens of events that mash up our 12 impact areas. Workplace, business, play, entrepreneurship, sustainability, education, healthcare, social impact, data visualization, diversity, vibrant cities, and civic innovation. Design Museum Week 2022 will feature five days of hybrid online, offline events that spark conversation, inspire leaders, and educate professionals working in all areas of design. While most sessions will be virtual, we look forward to welcoming attendees for in-person gatherings as well in cities across the U.S. Go to designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on events to get your tickets today. We're back and we're joined by our special guest, Brian Parker. Brian is a thought leader in workplace strategy and design. For the past two decades, he has developed workplace design and experience solutions for PwC's 50,000 plus partners and staff in the 90 U.S. offices. At PwC, the Art Lifting Curated Collection showcases a diversity of artwork and embodies PwC's mission of solving important problems and building trust in society. Brian's work is rooted in solid qualitative and quantitative data accompanied by design thinking methodologies. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sam. It's great to be here. You know, before we even get into the collaboration with Art Lifting, we have a number of episodes about sort of like, there's the workplace design, the physical environment, the materials, the access to light, all this stuff matters, right? To the human beings working in these spaces, including art. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit some of our listeners might not be familiar with sort of like a corporate art strategy. Like, what does that even mean? First of all, I love the fact that I got connected with art lifting through one of our architects many years ago, Liz. I, it was shortly after you all had just sort of formed. I think you were maybe only a few years old. And prior to that, our strategy had always been um, localized, right? So we would have the strategy of making sure we use as much local artists as we can. And and really, this this was an entry point into our partners and staff feeling some ownership and some pride in their space. This wasn't corporate real estate coming down and saying, here's what you're going to have. But, uh, so the selection of art was always important to us. And it was our way of building this um, just meaningful experience for our people when designing a, 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 an office. So we've always involved the, the local office. We've always had a strategy of filling the walls as in the tasteful way with artwork that reflects our style and our brand and our culture. But more importantly, allowing our local office and individuals to have a say in that. 
So for, throughout the years, we used to do the traditional hire art consultant, let them run with the show. I caught the bug and sometimes, you know, veered out of my lane because I loved it so much and would work with that art consultant or be more the internal art consultant within the firm. And then throughout the years, once we got uh, connected with art lifting, we would tell our art consultants, hey, uh, we want to use art lifting in this. And then there were a few projects where we only used art lifting to, to use our spaces. And uh, most recently, there was a small project that I did that I was the sole art consultant, simply sent my order over to art lifting and it was fantastic. But I'd say, again, the, the key thing for us in our strategy with uh, corporate art is making sure that it reflects what our people want to see every day and, and a feeling of pride when they walk into the office. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Liz, how does it start when you're working with a client like Brian? Like you said, he sent, sent the order over, but how, how are you even sort of like readying yourselves for this level of, I mean, 90 offices and um, this is big stuff. What does it look on your end? And then I want to hear from Brian about sort of like the collaboration. It's been uh, something we've developed over time is how can we make it as seamless as possible for Brian or the Brian's of the world at the 350 corporations we work with. What we've learned is just having being super clear of all we need are the floor plans, the color palette and your budget. And then we'll kind of like spoon feed you recommendations um, that show every artwork and the exact spot on the floor plan and it all fits within your budget. Um, it's really exciting to have di uh, discovery calls at the beginning because uh, some clients, it's important to them, for example, to keep the space fresh. So they might want to do a rental rotation rather than have permanent artwork. Um, some clients, innovation is really important. Um, so thinking through artists who create not using their hands, it could be a good fit to make their values visible. So that's kind of the main way we work with corporations and oftentimes at scale, um, like, you know, a Brian scale of 90 offices will have a project plan. So we'll look at, okay, these 15 offices will be renovated this year. This is our plan for these two offices in February and these two in March to make it as seamless as possible. If, if you don't mind, I was just going to say one of the things that you did for us, uh, Liz, that I love so much was created our sort of own art lifting PwC website portal, right? Where they curated pieces that were aligned with our brand and aligned with some of our strategies, the things that Liz just outlined there. And, and the fact that I can point people within the firm to that um, is fantastic. And, you know, people are talking about, you know, they want to buy it for their home now, they want to, <laughs> or if there's maybe a, a, a local office that just needs a little uh, sprucing up that they don't have to go through my uh, whole corporate structure to purchase a few pieces. They can go directly and and work directly with art lifting and the site that they set up for us. So it's fantastic. Yeah, that's really cool. Brian, can you tell us a little, like paint a picture for us of what, you know, this artwork feels like and looks like in the office, maybe some favorite examples. Yeah. So the selections that are available to us is so vast. So there is just a great variety. I actually, I am, again, I drank the Kool-Aid. I have a piece in my house, <laughs> so uh, which I don't have a copy of that particular artist in any of our other uh, offices or anything, but it's, it's very vast. Um, we tend to lean a little bit more towards some of the abstract, which is, I think, pretty common in corporate art, right? Photography is also a, a big um, attraction, but we, we've done the combination of it the attraction of it 
back to what the story is, what the artist's story is. And what I've also enjoyed quite a bit is the amount of uh, local artists that we can select from. So we still are able through art lifting to tie that back. So if I'm working on a project in Texas, there's a variety of Texas artists that we can use. Now, to your question of, you know, what does it look like? What does it feel like? Again, whatever the vibe is that we're going for the office. My most recent project was in Las Vegas. Las Vegas office, small office, but a very different culture in Las Vegas than, say, you know, uh, Dallas, Texas. <laughs> and um, they went with very colorful, abstract. This was an office that was done and designed during our COVID period. So everything literally was done remotely. I didn't get to go on site until just actually a few months ago. And I was doing our presentations just like Liz was talking about uh, doing those discovery times. And uh, Las Vegas is one of the offices we only used art lifting and had a variety of things that I had curated for them to take a look at. And we're doing this remote and it was complete silence when I was done with the presentation. And I thought, man, I missed the mark. They they don't like any of this. And when I pried, it, it literally was because they were they were a little choked up. And they said, we had no idea that we were going to have this kind of impact with the selections that were, I mean, and they just, it, the, the tone of our entire project took on a new meaning of understanding, you know, the buzzwords that are out today with ESG and our, uh, you know, having an impact on society. What, what a difference it can make on selecting some artwork. And the follow-up is I, I just talked to the partner of that office and he's, I asked him recently, I said, you know, you have people coming in. He's like, I, I did. He's like, yeah, I had a client in and we have three of David McAuliffe's uh, pieces. And the client came in and commented on it, read the little bio. And the partner was beaming and said, and I selected those. I'm the one that picked <laughs> those pieces. So, you yes. know, it's that great interaction. It's, it's just a great way to start any conversation, talking about the art, talking about the artist, and then those individuals in the in the office, their personal relationship then with that art. It's great. So Brian, you mentioned like ESG and the buzzwords uh, that are popular today. Can you define uh, ESG for our listeners who might not know what that is? Yes. So that's the environmental, social, and governance impact corporations have, or everybody has really on the world. PwC has embrace that quite a bit. It's sort of the new benchmark, if you will, and measurement of corporate social responsibility or um, our impact. It goes a little far beyond, you know, what is your HR policy or what is your carbon footprint? It's being much more intentional about that. So I wanted to ask you about, like, obviously you've supported Artlifting for many years uh, before COVID. Um, but now that COVID has a happened and obviously many social movements have happened afterwards um including seeing the great recession with you know so many millennials in particular leaving companies that don't align with their work-life balance or um, their commitment to corporate social responsibility how do you see um, art lifting related to you know the point in history where we're at now and especially this transition that we'll hopefully have soon of people starting to go back into offices. The impact that we have on people's day-to-day -day lives when they're in the office, you talked about at the beginning, you know, what's the lighting like? What's the environment like? Art is part of that, or just color is part of that. You know, all of, all of those things are part of that. So bringing people back in, there is a greater sense of having that corporate social responsibility. The relationship then with art lifting that I see will be going forward is that 
we probably are not going to be doing a lot of brand new projects a whole lot, right? Corporate world's kind of... Yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird time. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're sort of on autopilot going, what's next? Should we downsize? Should we, you know, give up real estate? Should we redesign real estate? But there's still this encouragement to, we know we have to do something different in the workplace to, to meet the needs that you're just talking about with the corporate social responsibility. I use the phrase, you know, we've been working from home for the last three years, and now we have to start learning how to home from work or companies need to learn how to home from work. And by that, I mean, you know, what is it you're used to in your home environment that you want to start seeing reflected in your work environment? Art certainly would be part of that. The meaningful aspect of it, of coming into a place and thinking, uh, I'm making a difference, not just in the work I'm doing for my client, but in society. And then just having that a new environment that's more of a residential home feel. So, you know, I see the the near future, if, if organizations like PwC or others want to revitalize and put a jolt of energy into their workplace without uh, major, huge, you know, redesigns and IT work, art is the way to do it. Using art lifting hits many, many buttons, not just the the visual aspect of it, but everything else that we just talked about. It's a question for both of you, because, you know, speaking about home, like our homes become our offices. We've talked a few times on the podcast about what's the the future of sort of like the home office concierge. And I'm wondering, like, do I get my art lifting print, you know, that I get to borrow for a few weeks, you know, and hang in my home office and then it gets sent over to my colleague? How do we meet people where they are? I'm curious, you know, with, with um, people working from home, PwC, how are you? How are you trying to infuse some of that the opposite way, I guess? We're on a new venture now of <laughs> anticipating that people are going to come back into the office a little bit more. And again, the reason, and, and we've, we've made some, some changes, but the reason we know people want to come back into the office is for more social collaborative environment. So, and PwC has always been a very mobile workforce, right? That's just the nature of how we, we've always been. Um, but I like your idea there of, uh, <laughs> actually, you know what I was just thinking, Liz, is that, wow, wouldn't that be great? You think about all the people that are doing uh, Zoom meetings or, or, or town halls, virtual, large scale, one person presenting a rotation of art lifting pieces behind them, you know, would just be marvelous to, to be able to talk about. Yeah, and I love your focus, Liz. I wonder... There's so much going on in the art world with like NFTs. I don't even want to go down that road on this podcast because it's just, I don't fully understand it. Liz, have you thought, you know, are there other directions to go with this work to provide even more impact to the artists? Love your idea as well, Sam. Um, One other thing that we've done in the virtual world is uh, virtual backgrounds. Recently, we had a corporation share the idea of like, what if uh, they were to commission specific artworks that um, show their five values, and then uh, they could pay a licensing fee and their 100,000 employees could have that as their virtual background. Um, so I I feel like we're at a, such a unique time where there's all this creativity of we're not just thinking of a, a simple piece of art hanging on a wall, but people are approaching us with creative ideas. In terms of what we're working on that would be really high impact for our artists, uh, we actually just developed a 3D offering, uh, which has been a dream for many years. Um, Something 
that is really fascinating to me is many cities have a 1% for the art requirement. Uh, What that means is if there's a $100 million new building, then they need to spend $1 million on public art, which is defined as art that can be seen from the street. And that almost always is a sculpture. Um, Sometimes it's a, a mural. Um, so we're so thrilled to now have the ability to offer 3D, um, not only to meet our clients' needs, but also to you know, really elevate the potential impact we can have on our artists. And, you know, we've had artists earn six figures in a year and cumulatively earn millions. But what it, our real dream is, what if all 160 artists and as we expand to even more What if they could all earn a living wage every year? 3D would help us get there. So is that scalable as well, the 3D? Because because that is one of the things that, and I'll say, so that's fantastic. You know, we struggle, I think, in the corporate, usually get a 3D piece like in the lobby or something like that. And occasionally, you know, I'll find something really great that um, is scalable and sizable that we could use 3D pieces throughout the office itself. And again, you have a different response and a reaction to that. So is is the plan too, Liz, that that would be scalable like that? Yeah. We actually already have a vendor now that can create 3D scalable works on walls as well. So they can print our artist's work on laser cut, steel cut panels, or they could have it on layered wood panels. Um, so obviously we we do offer the the lobby commission sculptures, um, but thrilled to have kind of the quote unquote print option available for 3D too. Yeah, there you go. Fantastic. Yeah, that's really cool. Brian, I'm curious, you know, you're definitely connecting with the artists sort of like through the the search and the transaction, do you ever get to connect with the artists like in the space, Liz? Is that ever something that happens like when these commissions happen? Are they are they all kind of brought together to close the loop? Sometimes, yeah. It depends uh, on location. So we've got artists in 26 states and customers in 47 states. So oftentimes there isn't a match between, um, you know, the artists is in Florida and the, the spaces in Manhattan. Uh, but we have had special events um, like at uh, PayPal headquarters where they actually flew artists from across the country uh, to speak on a panel. So it doesn't happen day to day, but have had special moments like that. Um, and then also with, you know, Zoom, uh, with this virtual world, we've had a, a lot more opportunity to directly connect artists with clients and employees. Um, they, our artists have run a lot of virtual, um, art groups for employees, um, as a way to kind of have a a mental health break in their middle of their busy work day. Brian, you shared a little bit about the impact this has had on your PwC colleagues of, you know, that speechlessness when they were choked up thinking about their impact, but love to hear any other stories of, uh, the impact that this partnership has had. It varies from all responses, which is what art does, right? I would say the other thing that we had another installation not long ago that we used quite a bit of art lifting in um, our LA office and created a use it intentionally in a more sort of public social space where there's a lot of sort of in and out movement of people. And we purposely decided that what we would do is use a lot of smaller 
pieces rather than large scale pieces on the wall so that people were going up and getting close and personal, not just to the art itself, but then to the bio. But it's usually two, three, four people doing that. So I, I'm, I'm an observer. That's part of my, my, my role in what I do at PwC, right? I love to sit back and watch how people are interacting and, and make those connections. And you see the conversations amongst employees talking about the art, and then it will start engaging them talking about something different. Maybe it ends up being something related to uh, a work project they're working on. Same thing with our clients or other people coming in. The fact that it's a catalyst for that conversation, breaking down barriers where people start to talk about just basic human things. I like this. This is pretty to reading a bio of, of you know, mental health has been a, a very big focus for us at PwC. We've been very honest about that. And to read bios of people who have um, or who are artists who are expressing things that, you know, they've gone through with mental health. It opens up conversation that otherwise, you know, it would be something that you would not have when you're just passing by typical corporate art. So I think it's really about once it's in place, it's, it's new, it's rediscoverable to everybody. I think in the past when I used traditional methods of putting corporate art on, it's like, yeah, it was there. <laughs> You know, if somebody has a favorite piece and they might take someone and show it. But with this, it's rediscoverable in many different ways each time. And I, I just absolutely love that. I love watching the interactions that people have with each other because they're now interacting with art. I'm curious if you both have thoughts. You know, there's probably people listening to this episode who are so inspired, Liz, by the work that you're doing and you've created something really amazing and sustainable. And then Brian, from the you know corporate and ESG side, you know making these intentional choices, right, that have real impact. I'd love to hear both of your sort of advice for people who are like want to make impact, want to either design change, make change. Liz, maybe from the entrepreneurial side, and then Brian, advice maybe from like the corporate side. Maybe Liz, you could kick us off. Yeah, I think you know first it's obviously really refining what the problem is that you're trying to solve, and then being open-minded. You spoke about design thinking, Brian. Um, So for those who aren't familiar with that, of just like really having a full brainstorm session of what are all of the possibilities and refine from there. Um, I think, you know, back to intentionality, a lot of times we're just, we as in humans are just going through the motions and keeping our heads above water and not really reflecting. So taking that time to say, well, you know, the problem I'm trying to solve isn't just not having a blank wall, but it's making people feel at home and it's making people aware that we value community and diversity and it's creating a safe space to share their full selves. So having that written down will then help lead to more creative solutions. Totally agree with with what you just said, and it's very much the same with on the corporate side. It's the intentionality of it. You know, we I have a job to do at the end of the day, right? I got to build offices, so there's sort of like, yes, I know I have to do all these things. But when we take that moment to be intentional about some of the other aspects of the office, a wall is a wall. I know what the drywall is going to be. I don't need to spend a lot of time on that. But I want to make sure that when we walk out of that place, people are that our people are reflected in their space. Being intentional about it, I, I, a few years ago, I had one partner said to me, she said, arts tends to be really masculine. That was an eye-opener for me, right? I was like, 
you're absolutely right. And started being more intentional to make sure that everybody is reflected and the art is reflecting our, our people. So on the corporate side, it's really about taking that intention and knowing that you have a job to do, but looking for those opportunities that you can make an impact in on the ESG you know, numbers, not, not just because you want to check off the box to get the score, but from who you're engaging with, you know, is the, the organizations, the vendors that you're using, um, like an art lifting, who are they engaging with? And ultimately, are you doing better as a result of what for society? Are you doing better in, for society with your day-to-day work? And we all have the opportunity to do that in some small way. Some of us have a really big impact in it. Some of us, it's you know very small. But if you're intentional and have it in your forefront together, it can make a much bigger difference in the world. Yeah. Brian, thank you so much for being here and sharing your experience with Artlifting. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, listeners, to see more of Brian's work, you can visit pwc.com. And more importantly, we will link the Artlifting curated collection for PwC in our show notes. All right, folks, it's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. I am sharing the most triumphant book I have seen in a long time. It's called The Black Experience in Design. And I want to shout out to one of the editors and writers, Jennifer Rittner, who's on our council, who sent me a copy. Thank you, Jennifer. I've just started reading it. It is amazing. It's 600 pages filled with stories of black designers. I believe there's over 70 contributors. Yes. And the, the six editors are Ann Barry, Kareem Kali, Panina Akayo Laker, Leslie Ann Knoll, Jennifer Rittner, and Kelly Walters. And I'll give you a little bit of the description here. The Black Experience in Design spotlights teaching practices, research stories, and conversation from a Black slash African diasporic lens. Excluded from traditional design history and educational canons that heavily favor European modernist influences, the work and experiences of Black designers have been systematically overlooked in the profession for decades. So this book aims to change that, and it really does. I've really enjoyed the first few stories and interviews, and I highly recommend everyone in design and otherwise get this book and uh, check it out. So it's called The Black Experience in Design, and enjoy. Okay, Liz, you're up next. For me, it's the company Grit. Uh, It's a social enterprise that tackled the challenge of most wheelchairs only work on a a perfect sidewalk, but many surfaces in the world aren't like that. Um, What if you want to go use your wheelchair in the woods and it's an uneven surface? Uh, So they, it was founded by two friends um, when they were at MIT and it's been so exciting to watch them grow over the last eight years. And um, they've helped thousands of people uh, kind of connect with nature and um, use their wheelchairs and spaces where they otherwise couldn't go. Oh, that sounds amazing. I can't wait to check that one out. And we'll definitely post a link. Awesome. Awesome. Listeners, if you have a great weekly dose of good design, I would love to share it on the podcast. So tweet it at me or share it with me on Twitter at Sam Aquilano. Liz. Always a joy hanging out with you, talking with you. Thanks for being here and sharing your story. Thank you, Sam. 
That's our show. Again, I want to thank Liz Powers and Brian Parker for joining us. And thank you all for being here and listening. We'll post links to the resources we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and in the menu, click on podcast. You can always find the latest from us on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. You can find us on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. We have an awesome weekly email newsletter, so you can get, always get the latest from Design Museum in your inbox. You can sign up for that on our website. Just scroll all the way to the bottom and click on sign up for e-news. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Design is Everywhere, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your ratings and reviews really help us reach new audiences so that we can keep chatting about the transformative power of design each week. Thank you all for your support. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here, and we'll talk again next week.